you know, with everything going on in the uh, criminal justice system, I have to say that our criminal justice system is rotten to the core. Okay, now, before you can fairly assess the legitimacy of the ongoing protest or the quality of the government's response, you must understand the relevant facts. And the most relevant fact is that America's criminal justice system is rotten to its core. Okay, though that certainly does not justify the violence and wanton destruction of property perpetrated by far too many protesters, it does provide useful context for comprehending the intensity of anger and fecklessness of the government's response. If America is burning, it is fair to say that America's criminal justice system, which is itself a raging dumpster fire of injustice, lit the fuse. Now, I do feel motivated to say these words because it appears from some of the, you know, comments that I have been reading about certain things going on, including even from libertar uh, libertarian circles, that many people who consider themselves to be generally skeptical of government and supportive of individual rights have no idea just how fundamentally broken our criminal justice system is and how wildly anti-ethical it has become to our core constitutional values. Within days or weeks, protesters have renounced the use of lawless violence as a tool of politics, but the state will not. That's the key takeaway. And the thing you really need to understand about this moment in time is that's all it is. I see three issues in America's criminal justice system that completely undermine its morale and political legitimacy and render it a menace to the very concept of constitutionally limited government. I'm sorry. So those three are. Number one, unconstitutional overcriminalization. Number two, point and convict adjudication. And number three, near zero accountability for police and prosecutors. So, what do I mean by unconstitutional overcriminalization? Well, what is the proper role of a criminal justice system in a liberal democracy? I mean, simply put, it is to employ state sanctioned violence to discourage and punish conduct. That a conduct that threatens the very fabric of civil society, things like murder, um, violent assaults, theft, fraud, you know, the first and most basic pathology of America's criminal justice system is that it vastly exceeds the scope of what a criminal justice system may legitimately seek to address while routinely using force against peaceful people in more in morally indefensible ways. Let's take, for example, the Shreveport LA ordinance that made it legal to wear saggy pants. Okay. There were 726 arrests, 726 arrests for violating that law during the 12 years. It was on the books, 96% involving black men. And it wasn't until police shot and killed a man named Anthony Childs while trying to arrest him for wearing saggy pants that the law was finally repealed. He had to die for the law to be repealed. Now, similarly, of the three most preferred drugs in America, such as alcohol, nicotine, and marijuana, marijuana is by far the safest in terms of consumption-related deaths. But despite that fact and the massive push towards 
decriminalization, the number of arrests for marijuana offenses has been rising, not falling. For example, in Virginia, okay, there were nearly 29,000 arrests for marijuana offenses, triple the number from 1999. And all of those arrests, by definition, involved the actual or threatened use of state-sanctioned violence for conduct that appears to be no more harmful and indeed may well be considerably less harmful to society than the purchase and consumption of the alcoholic beverages so that any of the 370 stores operated for profit by the government 370 stores by the government what does that say to you? How many people have perished because of drunk drivers? <laughs> it is immoral to use force against another person, okay, without sufficient justification. And that is true even when the perpetrator is acting at the behest of the state. At the risk of stating the obvious, the fact that a person prefers the wrong, not particularly harmful intoxicant, is not a sufficient moral justification for doing violence to that person, nor should it represent a sufficient constitutional justification for employing state violence. But unfortunately, and to its immense discredit, our judiciary, our, sorry, our judiciary, judiciary says otherwise. Jesus, I can't say that word today. I'm sorry. Anyways, I have written... Plenty of essays during my college time about the failure to properly enforce constitutional limits on government power. And it sucks because I will not repeat the arguments, honestly, especially here. But to say the least, a baseline constitutional limit on government is that it may not arbitrarily interfere with people's liberty, including how to worship where to travel, or what to ingest. Working together, however, the three branches have essentially hacked that limitation using what amounts to a constitutional magic um, trick, whereby the legislative and executive executive branches simply lie in court about their true justification for enforcing various laws, and the judiciary pretends to credit those fraudulent explanations for restricting people's freedoms. I said judiciary. Here we go. Awesome. Anyways, combining the powerful public choice dynamics that motivate legislators to constantly and indiscriminately expand the scope of the criminal law with the judiciary's feckless refusal to enforce the Constitution's prohibition uh, prohibition against unjustified restrictions of liberty results in a criminal justice system that routinely does violence to perfectly dissent people for non-morally wrongful conduct that presents no real threat to other people or to society. And that is the essence of unconstitutional over-criminalization. And it does incalculable damage to the moral and political legitimacy of our criminal justice system. So, Marina, what about point and convict adjudication? Well, I have, a, you know, I mean, unconstitutional overcriminalization could never have become the menace it is today if all criminal charges were adjudicated using the consti uh, constitutional constitutionally prescribed mechanism of a jury trial. Okay, so that's because jury trials are expensive and require 12 people to take time away from their jobs and families and personal lives in order to decide whether to condemn the fellow human being and authorize the often quite vicious punishment the state seeks to inflict. 
If people are constantly being asked to put their lives on hold in order to help adjudicate trivial crimes such as low-level marijuana distribution, it will not be long before they send a clear message to prosecutors to stop wasting their time and taxpayers' money on the enforcement of Mickey Mouse laws that don't make people's lives any better or the community any safer. But the government has hacked yet another key constraint against the abuse of criminal law by replacing expensive, inefficient, and uncertain jury trials with a method method of adjudicating criminal charges that is cheap, efficient, and certain, coercive plea bargaining. Indeed, so proficient have prosecutors become at inducing people to condemn themselves that more than 95% of all criminal convictions today come from guilty pleas rather than jury trials. As the Supreme Court itself has observed, American criminal justice today is for the most part a system of pleas, not a system of trials. (laughs) So inducing people to condemn themselves is an inherently squalid business, guys, particularly in a system that purports to guarantee something as precious from the standpoint of the accused as a jury trial. Think of it this way. How on earth would you get someone to choose the certainty of conviction and punishment if they plead guilty over the possibility of acquittal and freedom if they exercise their constitutional right to require the government to prove their guilty beyond a reasonable doubt to the satisfaction of a unanimous jury. Hello? The answer is pressure and lots of it. Again, again pressure and lots of it coercing criminal defendants into waiving their constitutional right which happens every day in court to a jury trial is of course patently unconstitutional but if you've been paying attention you can probably guess where the story goes next that's right straight to the doorsteps of our feckless judiciary, which has made itself complicit in this point and convict style of coercive adjudication by systematically turning a blind eye. For example, in 1978, case called Borden, uh, sorry, Borden Kersher, I believe it is, Borden Kersher versus Hayes. Yeah, the Supreme Court rejected a due process challenge to a prosecutor's nakedly coercive threat to increase a defendant's exposure from a maximum of 10 years to life imprisonment if he refused the prosecutor's invitation to accept a five-year plea offer. And in 1992, case involving the spy Jonathan Pollard, the D.C. Circuit held that it is categorically non-coercive to threaten to indict a defendant's relatives in order to exert plea leverage. The the judiciary's collective indifference um, to the use of coercion and plea bargaining has resulted in the practical elimination of jury trials and enables the government to obtain convictions without the expense and inconvenience of that constitutionally prescribed procedure. As a matter of simple economics, when the cost of a particular good, whether it be automobiles or criminal convictions, comes down, consumption will rise which appears to be precisely what has happened in America's hypercarceral criminal justice system. I mean, if you think of the criminal justice system as a massive wood chipper that sucks in people and spits out convicts, the jury trial was meant to be a kind of aperture restrictor over the maw of that ravenous machine. Again, 
trial by jury is a relatively expensive and inefficient mechanism for adjudicating criminal charges, and it ensures that neither the government nor society at large takes lightly the act of condemning human beings and putting them in cages. Coercive plea bargaining represents the government's success in prying off that aperture restrictor to enable the criminal justice wood chipper to operate at full capacity and ensure that America continues to have the highest incarceration rate in the world. I mean, if this isn't an eye-opener, I don't know what else is. I mean, how about the near-zero accountability of police and prosecutors? Let's go there, shall we? Let's go. Okay, so the third and final pathology of America's criminal justice system that I will discuss here is our near-zero accountability policy for members of law enforcement, including particularly police and prosecutors. Cato's project on criminal justice has written extensively about the cornerstone of that policy, qualified immunity in recent days. So I will cut to the chase. The bottom line is this, guys, American police and prosecutors wield extraordinary power over the lives of others, including even the power of life and death. And yet they are among among the least accountable people on the planet. Pretty much. Yep. And just because the killers of, for example, George Floyd are being prosecuted for murder, which have, they, they have been found guilty, at least one of them has, um, no one should be fooled into supposing that that would have happened without a viral video of the incident or if the officer's violent assault had merely injured Floyd instead of killing him. The reality is that police are almost never prosecuted for the crimes they commit under color of law and the judiciary starting to see a theme here has helped ensure that other avenues of accountability, including particularly the ability to bring civil damages claims are largely toothless. So notably what makes the fundamental lack of accountability, particularly galling is that police and prosecutors are in the accountability business for other people. So just listen to the closing argument of any prosecutor. I mean, if you can if you can manage to find a criminal jury trial and you will hear it dripping with sanctimony as the prosecutor recounts the details of the defendant's transgressions and imprecates the jury to hold him or her responsible. But when the shoe is on the other foot and a fellow prosecutor stands credibly accused of committing crimes in the course of his or her official duties, then suddenly all concern for responsibility, accountability, and preserving the delicate fabric of civil society goes right out the window as the milk of human kindness flows freely from judges and other prosecutors alike. In short, we have a massive double standard between the level of accountability to which members of law enforcement hold the rest of us and the level of accountability to which they permit themselves to be held, which again is very close to zero. So a final point bears mentioning. America's criminal justice system is fundamentally rotten, but the effects of its dysfunction are not felt equally by all Americans. Instead, it is the marginalized and politically disenfranchised who bear the brunt of that injustice, including particularly communities of color. Now, although both the root causes and the significance of racial disparities in our criminal justice system are debatable, the existence of those disparities is not. And when people perceive correctly, in my judgment, 
that some lives are counted by the system as less sacred than others, they are going to be angry about it, and they damn well should be. God bless.